Please turn your Bible to 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6. As we continue our study in 1 Timothy, this is somewhat uh, part two of last week's message, sort of a continuance of Paul's thoughts from what we saw last week and sort of an opposing take uh, to that, to, to the Christian. And so 1 Timothy 6 is where we will begin, and I'll begin in verse 6. And this is God's word for us today. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing... With these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. May God bless the reading of His Word. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we come now to the preaching of Your Word, and we acknowledge, God, that this is Your holy, infallible, authoritative Word. It is, it is truth preserved for us of who we are, who You are, what we are now in Christ, how man can be saved, and how we can live in grateful, growing obedience. So God, we pray that this word would would cut where it needs to cut, that it would encourage where it needs to encourage. We pray that by the power and presence of your spirit that we trust that he is here today in our midst, that you would make the word effectual in our hearts, that the word of God by the spirit of God would have its way in our hearts, that we might be transformed and changed and convicted and corrected, sanctified and strengthened, Lord. So be with us, we ask. Lead us, we pray. We ask all this in Jesus' name for His sake. Amen. Well, if you've recently opened up a a browser on your smartphone or computer or went into a, a store turned on a television, turned on the radio, drove down the street, you have certainly been confronted with some form of advertisement. Something, some company out there trying to touch that point of your flesh that has the desire for for more, for the things of this world. Uh, It is the ominous voice of Stacey Keach that has narrated some 16 seasons of a television show called American Greed, And that show is filled with stories about greedy Americans that uh, will go to to endless lengths to con their fellow man, to line their pockets, even risking imprisonment. It was Rockefeller who is said to have uh, said at one time, and Rockefeller, um, they say, according to the adjustment of inflation, uh, would be worth some $330 billion today in our time. But someone asked him, supposedly at some point in his life, how much is enough? And he responded, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. And it was in 1965 that the Rolling Stones released their hit song, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. And as Mick Jagger says, I try 
and I try, and I try. Why is it that man can be so filled with greed and desire for more, but never seem to find that which the heart truly longs for? Why is it that endless stories can be told about con men and their plots for riches and their willingness to risk even life in prison for personal gain? Why is it that the advertising industry is one of the most lucrative industries in all of the world? And why is it that the flesh just cannot seem to find satisfaction? Well, praise God that the answer is found in His Word. And it's simply that we pursue the wrong things. We, we seek the wrong source, and we spend ourselves on an endless quest for things that will only leave us empty and thirsting for more. But praise God that there is contentment and satisfaction to be found. But it is found in Christ. Not in this world. It is found in Christ. And so my big idea today, my thesis is this. The desire for more is a deadly arrow for the soul. The answer for the longing heart is satisfaction in the Savior. The desire for more is a deadly arrow to the soul The answer for the longing heart is satisfaction in the Savior. And so how do we find satisfaction in Christ? Uh, Looking back at the text, we we missed a play on words that that Paul sort of juxtaposes two ideas here. Um, Remember we saw last week as we tried to identify a heretic, uh, we saw that the substance of the heretic starts with his teaching, of course, But we saw, we peered a bit into his heart, that he was divisive and arrogant and proud. But we also saw his hope. And his hope, we said, was was a vain hope. It was a temporal hope in the things of this life. Paul said it like this. He is imagining that godliness is a means of gain. That's the hope of the heretic. That he can fleece God's flock, that he can gain some financial recourse for himself that he could benefit in this life. And so we saw the false teacher is arrogant and he thrives on controversy and he divides the people of God. He's, Paul says that he is spiritually blind and devoid of the truth. And his aim is gain, the gain of wealth for himself through religion. He is happy to blaspheme the name of the Lord, to lie to God's people for personal advantage. And so Paul says he imagines that godliness is gain, that you could profit off of the Lord. But then look at what he says in verse 6 of our text today. But godliness with contentment is great gain. And so maybe you've read that text and you've said, well, what is it, Paul? Which, which one is it? Is it evil to gain from godliness or is godliness great? Notice he did say godliness with contentment. Godliness with contentment is great gain. And so to answer this question, how do we find satisfaction in Christ, which is the first point, first section, uh, I want to give you three reminders today. And the first one is this, you are rich in Christ. How do we find satisfaction in Jesus, beloved? You are rich in Christ. Verse 6 again, Paul says, Godliness with contentment is great gain, abundant gain, abundant advantage. But how is that the case? 
How is godliness gain? How do we how do we profit, if you will, from godliness? Turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians chapter two, a a, a familiar text here, certainly, where Paul is addressing the wonderful work of salvation that God has wrought into those that once followed the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience. And notice what he says in verse 6, maybe a piece of this section that we don't often emphasize. Ephesians 2 verse 6, he says that God raised us up with him, with Christ, and seated us with him in the heavenly places, in Christ Jesus. I, maybe it's just me, but I think this is glossed over sometimes. You know, when we talk about the gospel, we talk about salvation, we talk about the forgiveness of our sins. And that is, Christian, that all of your sin has forever been forgiven. Now, I know you hear that every week, and it's easy for it to become common, but I, I want to give you an exercise after church. Go back to Monday, push play on the recording of your week, and watch your week, and then rejoice that all your sin is forgiven. Because we walk in darkness, even as Christians, right? We do foolish things. And so all of your sin has been forgiven. You've been filled with the Spirit of God, and your debt of guilt has been paid by Christ. You, who were once an enemy of God, now have a seat at His table. Now have a seat at His table. And so Paul says that He seated us with Him in heavenly places. Your nationality, as it were, now is in heaven. There is a spot at God's table with a little name card that has your name for the, ver- the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we will anticipate that glorious day where we are seated with Christ, drinking the fruit of the vine anew in His kingdom after we hear a sermon as we partake of the bread and the cup of the Lord's Supper. And so you've been seated in heavenly places. It is that certain that you will be there on that day, that He can say, now you are there. So praise God, your your home is not Medford, Oregon. (laughs) In all of its wickedness. But your home, saint, is heaven. That's where you are today. Your status is enshrined there, and there's nothing that can take that away. And he goes on in verse 7, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Paul loves that language, in Christ. There's so much theology packed in those two words. It speaks of our union with Jesus, the, the Christian having been redeemed by Christ, receiving all of the benefits of Christ's work. He is showing the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And if you forgot, by grace you have been saved through faith. Notice he doesn't say by faith, but it's by grace through faith. Because that faith is the gift of God bestowed upon you. And then on the next chapter, chapter 3 verse 8, this grace was given, this is Paul speaking to him, to preach... To the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And so you have, beloved, immeasurable riches. You have unsearchable 
riches. You, Christian, have every spiritual blessing in him. From the lowest man on the totem pole, if you will, to the kingdom of God, to the most prominent figure in Christ's church, however you want to hash those out, every single Christian has the fullness of the blessing and grace of God when they come to saving faith. There is no category of blessing. There is no second blessing that we are to pray for or long for. But the fullness of His Spirit, the Spirit of adoption, has been poured out upon you if you today are in Christ. I love the book of Romans. Who doesn't love the book of Romans? But I love the book of Romans in that Paul spends 11 chapters mining the depths of the work of the gospel. Chapter 1 and chapter 2, we learn of, of the pervasive depravity of man, the whole man, all men, Jew and Gentile alike, fallen short into chapter 3 of God's glory. Everyone is guilty before God, standing condemned, without excuse on that day. And then he begins to speak of this wonderful gift called faith. As we see Abraham there, the, the man of faith is put forward. We learn in Romans chapter 5 of this second Adam come to undo the curse that Adam had wrought on humanity. The, 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 the greater Adam has come to, to bring life where death came. Uh, we get into chapter 7 and we learn of the battle of sin for the life of the Christian. I, 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 I see what's wrong, but I, I do it. I see what's good and I, I struggle to do that. Romans 8, we get to the, the, the heights of Jesus' work. We see there the golden chain of, of redemption, that sovereign work of God. In chapters 9 through 11, we see this work of sovereign election that God calls whom he pleases. As Paul would say, can the, can the clay cry out to the potter? Why did you do this? The lump of clay being formed in, in God's hands. And it's at chapter 11, verse 33, that he just has to stop and sort of stand back and doxologize. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable are His ways. And you have immeasurable, untold riches in Christ that are inscrutable, beloved, that are beyond our finite ability to comprehend. Adoption, justification, sanctification, preservation, the promise and sureness of glorification. What could possibly compare? How could we possibly long for more? O oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? You are rich in Christ, beloved. You have all that you will ever need, regardless of your current financial state. You might say, Pastor, you haven't seen my bank account. <laughs> you have all child of God, that you will ever need. 20 years ago, 20 years ago, everyone knows the name Bill Gates. 20 years ago, Bill Gates was worth $55 billion. That number's doubled over the last two years. Who knows where it's gone? But 20 years ago, he was worth $55 billion. That was about $15 million more than all of the gold in Fort Knox that he had. Um, that number was more than 149 of the 191 countries in all of the world. That means one man, Bill Gates, uh, only 42 countries had more money than this one person, Bill Gates. If he wanted to spend all of that money over the last 20 years, he would have had to spend $7.5 million every single day. 
for 20 years straight. <laughs> we can't really fathom that kind of money, right? You think of the things that you like, you enjoy, the finer things of life, all the sushi you could eat, right? All the good that we could do with that sort of money. He is rich beyond measure, but he knows not Christ, and thus he is utterly bankrupt. He has nothing, beloved. He has this life, a fleeting vapor, and it will be over. And all that he's done in this life will be for naught. All of his riches will be left behind. The psalmist says that better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. Because the righteous has Christ. And you are rich in Christ. Remember that today. Secondly, your ultimate hope is glory. How do we have satisfaction in Christ in this life? Because our ultimate hope is glory. Back to 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 7. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. And we started with nothing, and we leave this world with nothing. I remember well, all of the children, but... When Charlotte was, was born, she was a bit early, and so we had to do that thankful but dreaded stay in the NICU for 15 days, and uh, there's nothing more when a baby's born that the parents want, well, to bring the baby home. Ultimately, you want the baby to be healthy, right? So you put up with the, the lights and all of that. Um, but when that little baby came home, she had nothing but her skin. She had no possessions. She had a blanket that the hospital had given her. She actually had a lot of stuff with her name on it at the house because the church had blessed us. But she had just come into the world with no possessions to be named. We start with nothing, and as Job says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The temporal treasures of this world are just that. Temporary. They don't last. They're fleeting joys for a moment. They are that which moth and rust destroy. You know, you have some treasure up in your attic that you've kept for years, and you open the box, and it's got mildew and mold, and it's destroyed. A friend of mine's father had the initial first X-Men comic book. Worth a lot of money. But he went in the back and started cutting stuff out when he was seven years old. And so it wasn't worth what it could have been because things degrade. Jesus would say that these are the things that the thief can break in and steal. The things that we can wake up tomorrow and it's all gone. That which loses its value, decays and degrade over time. Uh, these are the things that we go into debt for, that we max out our credit cards for, that we pay interest on for years long after they're Usefulness because we have to have them. I want it now. And for what? In the end, what does it all add up to? What, is, what do we gain from all of this pursuit? Believer, your hope is not found on this earth. Your ultimate hope. Now, there are good things in this life. The blessing of marriage, the blessing of raising children. Those are wonderful, fulfilling Blessings that God has given us. But if we try to find hope and joy, real hope, in the world's goods, we will come up empty 
time and time and time again. You've heard the cliched statement, you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer, but it's true. You know, you have some that even in their will, they want to be buried with their prized possessions. Sort of odd, right? You can't take it with you. Maybe they don't want anybody else to have it because it's so precious, but you can't take it with you. We're going to sing, after the sermon, we're going to sing, uh, Be Thou My Vision. I asked Matt and Lisa to sing that song. Even though we sang it last week, I felt like it was fitting. Listen to these words. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou, mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart, high King of heaven, my treasure thou art. High King of heaven, my victory won. May I reach heaven's joys, O bright heaven's sun. Heart of my own heart, whatever befall, still be my vision, O ruler of all. Satisfaction in Christ comes when we square with the reality that heaven and glory and Christ and the new creation, that is where our ultimate hope lies. These are the things that I think we need to teach and train the heart to love and to long for. Because our hearts need to be discipled. Amen? Our hearts need to be calibrated. They need to be set on a, on a new path, on a righteous path. We, we, we walk in these paths of, of, of folly. And so the heart needs to be taught that Christ is where our hope lies. Listen to what Paul writes to Titus. He says that we are to live self-controlled, upright, in godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now in that vision of the, the blessed hope, the ultimate hope, supreme joy is set before the heart, set before the mind every day, that goal, that longing, that destination then true contentment in Christ can come because that is mine now. I have Him today. As our hearts are set on that which is eternal instead of a constant pursuit of that which is temporal. But don't miss my, my point here. Finding our ultimate hope in glory does not mean that we sit in the window and just stare off hoping that the clouds part. That day will come. Amen? Come, Lord Jesus, come. That day will come. But listen to what Jesus says. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. So how do I live self-controlled, upright, and godly in this present age waiting for my blessed hope? How do I live as if heaven is my ultimate hope. We, we, we set our eyes on eternity. And that is, do the work that profits eternity. Do the work that profits eternity. Reorient the mind from a now focus to a not yet focus. And that's going to take a reevaluating of our priorities. Right? Where am I spending my time? What is my main focus in this life? And what might that look like practically? A number of things. I would say that we pursue and cultivate godliness and virtue in the heart, in the life. That if we have a spouse, men, we're discipling our wives. 
pouring ourselves into our wives. If we have children, we are discipling our children, pouring ourselves into them. Now, now we believe in a sovereign God that saves, but He uses means. And so as we think about the souls of our children, eternity is in the balance here. Eternity is in the balance. And God has given us a stewardship. Let's make our homes a place of worship. Christian homes where the means of grace are loved and our families and our own soul is shaped by those means of grace day in, day out. Preach Christ, beloved, to your neighbor. Preach Christ to your family. Delight in God and His Word. Sanctify time to spend on your knees. Deny yourself. Now I know that's not an American value. Indulge yourself is what the ad wants you to believe. Deny yourself. Delight in God. And you will be satisfied in Him. Now this may seem backwards. right? I deny myself and then I'll delight in God. But when we deny the flesh, when we deny ourselves and see the goodness and glory and mercy of God, we will find satisfaction in Him. But if we're constantly doing the opposite, indulging the flesh, indulging our lusts, denying the means of grace, denying communion with God, you will not be satisfied in Him. You will not find joy in those things. You will not have an appetite for Him if you're stuck on the junk food of this life and of this world. Because you'll constantly crave that sugary quick hit, that quick pleasure, setting aside that rich meal of Christ and Him crucified. I have, a, I have a little sister. She's not all that little anymore. She's a mother, actually, now. Um, but she, when we were, when she was growing up, she lived on macaroni and cheese. My mom had a stack of Stouffer's in the freezer, and she'd make dinner, and Sarah would eat mac and cheese. Almost all the time, right? And that's all she knew. She hadn't ventured out. And so she loved this mac and cheese, and now she eats the wildest stuff in the whole family. Because she's ventured out. But if we're stuck on the junk food of this world, we're missing a lush, lush, rich meal in Christ that God has given us in the means of grace, in communion with the Lord. And maybe for some of us here, if we were honest, if we were honest, you might say, you know, honestly, these things are boring to me. The Bible, prayer, Going to church, it's boring. I'm not, I'm not interested in it. It's the, I don't get a whole lot out of it. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're here, and, and if you were honest, you would say, I don't find interest in these things. I, I find excitement and joy elsewhere. I try to open my Bible, and it's boring. I don't get much out of it. I want to say two things. Number one, have you trusted in Christ as the one and only Savior. Now, I, my goal is never to have believing Christians every week questioning their salvation. But Paul does say, examine yourself. And we might ask ourselves, why is my heart so cold to the means of grace? Why do I get nothing out of the Bible? Why am I desiring to do anything but pray? Why do I see church as a duty instead of the wonderful delight that it is? And secondly, I think it begins here. 
Deny yourself. Train your heart. As, as our brother Paul read the words of Paul, discipline yourself toward godliness. The Christian life takes discipline. And we don't like discipline. It's, that's a difficult word. Some of you have that gift. You're just boom, boom, boom. God bless you. But for us mere mortals, discipline doesn't come easy. It's work. So denying ourselves means putting away the worldly toys. Putting away the endless hours of pleasure. The 12-hour Netflix binges or whatever, whatever. Insert your thing that tickles your fancy, that consumes your day. We must disciple the heart and mind to find joy, not in the junk food of this life, but in the fine cuisine in the means of grace. But if you live on mac and cheese, then that steak is not all that appealing. You have to venture out. Put the mac and cheese away. Pick up the word and you'll find their joy. So our ultimate hope is, is glory. It's not found here. And so we, we, we do the work that profits eternity to set our mind on those things. And thirdly here, hold loosely to this world's goods. Hold loosely to this world's good. Paul says that if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. <laughs> I, I know that some of us present company included, wish that that would be the case all the time. I have food and I have clothing and I'm content, right? But this world is bending over backwards every moment of your day, wanting to get you to scratch that itch for more. Did you know that the new iPhone came out? And did you know that you need it? You need it. Oh, you need it. Paul's saying no. The new, the new S29. <laughs> The new iPhone came out, and you need it because it's new. It's 14 and not 13. It's got more megabits and megahertz and megapixels. And so you need it because it's the new thing, right? That's what the television, everything is trying to tell us. The world is constantly fighting against your soul to feed, that you would feed the, the lust of your flesh, to tap into that greedy, fallen gene that wants more more money, more power, more influence, better looks, better life, better husband, better car, better home. But I love here the Apostle Paul. Philippians chapter 3. I love Paul's testimony in, in, in abandoning all that the world says is good and, and worthy and holds dear. Listen to what he says in Philippians 3 verse 4. He sort of gets a little... A little fiery here, a little frisky here. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day. Philippians 3, 5. That means he's from an Orthodox Jewish family that from his birth kept the law, observed the, the commandments of God and took him to the temple or took him to the synagogue to be circumcised on the eighth day. He's of the people of Israel, God's adopted elect people, or adopted people. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. He knows his lineage all the way back to Benjamin. He says, I'm a, I was a, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. Though they were known externally, but they were known for being law keepers, rigorous law keepers. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Can you match Paul's zeal? What he thought were heretics... Christians, he was locking them up and approving of their death. He had zeal, he thought, for the glory of God. 
as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, and there's that word gain, gain from this world, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That I may gain Christ. Whatever gain I had from this world, it is loss, it is rubbish, it is nonsense, it is a lie, it is a counterfeit, it is phony, that I may gain Christ. Do do we think like this, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus? Beloved, if you're a Christian here today, you know Jesus. And you know what's even better? Jesus knows you. He knows your name. You, you, your name is written in his, in his book. It was your sin that he was atoning for on that cross. This is infinite worth, infinitely valuable. Elon Musk, he's got a lot of jets and stuff. He has nothing if he has not Christ. Paul had such a heavenly perspective. His mindset was not earthbound. It was heavenbound, and thus he held loosely to the things of this life. So loosely that he could rejoice at his imprisonment because the gospel invaded the guard that it had not yet invaded. So he could rejoice. I'm in jail. Praise God. Rejoice with me. He could rejoice when self-serving preachers that were mocking him and ridiculing and insulting him were preaching the true gospel. And so he rejoiced because the gospel was actually going forth in their selfishness. He could rejoice at the loss of all earthly accolades, all fame, all of those doctorates and PhDs that he had hanging on the wall. He could count it all as lost because he had gained Christ. He could even rejoice at death. Because as Paul said, death for the Christian is the ultimate gain. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain, Beloved, and you have all that you will ever need in Christ Jesus. What more could we ask for? How could this world ever satisfy? And how could we ever think that it could? But oh, do we pursue folly. And that brings me to point number two. The soul-piercing desire for more. The soul-piercing desire for more. 1 Timothy 6, 9. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, Paul begins to paint now a picture of another path, another way to live, ultimately another Lord to serve. As Jesus says, you cannot serve God and mammon, God and money. The first picture that we just saw is is, is he 
that sees godliness as true gain, spiritual gain, gain that will bear fruit into eternity. That man that recognizes that the pleasures of this world are fleeting and true contentment will only be found in Christ. Even while living on the barest of necessities. But there is another way. And he calls it here, those who desire to be rich. Those who desire to be rich. That is, those that chase and pursue joy in their greed. In the things that this world offers. And notice what happens here in this, in this section. So it starts with desire. It starts with a lust to be rich. Now, what Paul is not addressing here, he's not addressing those that have money already, just if, if someone is, is wealthy. He will address that towards the end of the chapter. Brother Paul will, will tackle that text. We're not talking about here about the difficulties of being rich, because there are difficulties of being a Christian and, and being wealthy. The Bible says that. It's harder for a camel to be thread through a needle than a rich man to go to heaven. But this is those that desire to be rich. And as we saw uh, a number of months ago now, in the two offices of the church, elders and deacons, both of those qualifications had a section relating to this about the love of money or the pursuit of dishonest gain. Those disqualify an elder or a deacon from holding office in the church. They are that deadly. And notice now the progression. For those that desire to be rich, it starts with temptation. Those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. Now, now when you fall, you're not expecting to fall. Right? That's the nature of a, of a fall. There's a crack, there's a hole, there's a curb you weren't expecting. You take a step and you fall down. And so they fall into temptation. The pursuit of worldly things and the greed for more opens them up to new levels, new areas of temptation. That desiring the lust for money causes them to fall into things unexpected. New troubles they did not see coming before them. Why? Because the heart is exposed to more and more ungodly desires. This is really the case with all sin, right? Take a few steps into it. And before you know it, you're sucked in more than you thought you would be. And he says, next, they fall into a snare. Those that desire to be rich fall into temptation, and then they fall into a trap. One theologian says that riches are a temptation for those that don't have them, and a snare for those that find them. And so you become entangled in the pursuit of wealth. He says it leads to many senseless and harmless desires. As the heart is now given over to greed in some area, it acts as a snare, like an animal that's caught in a trap. And as it thrashes and tries to escape, it becomes more stuck in, 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 in injured. And so the the, the, the person that is ensnared by the pursuit of wealth is, is given over to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. And he says it plunges people into ruin. It will plunge you into ruin. Now this is the ruin of soul and body. And the word plunge there is, a, is used other places of a ship that is almost capsized by a wave or of drowning. 
Uh, John Gill says that this desire, the temptations and the snare is like a man drowning in the sea with a millstone around his neck. He's in a hopeless, desperate situation. This is a pursuit that begins with a desire for more, a desire for gain, leads into more temptations. You become ensnared there in this pursuit and ultimately it is utter ruin and eternal judgment. Now, I mentioned the television show American Greed, um, and it seems that there are en- endless stories of, of, of people that could not make it honestly, and so what do you do? You're working on Wall Street, and all of your colleagues are buying the new sports cars, buying the new homes, going on vacations, and you can't seem to make a buck, so what do you do? You tell a little, in your mind, a little white lie, right? No one's going to be heard. I'll just tweak the numbers a bit. Maybe you oversell what the return on the investment could be to one of the customers. You do that a few times, and before you know it, you're snared. You're, you're trapped there. You're in way deeper than you thought you would be, and so they have to lie to compound the lie to compound the lie. And what is the end? Usually the end is FBI agents at the door and federal sentences of 20, 30, 40 years. All for What? All to make a buck, all to keep up with the next guy, all to have the, the, the dreams of, of this world. But notice what Paul says. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. I believe the King James says the love of money is the root of all evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, I think it's worth noting that this text is not written to the, the broker on Wall Street. Now, it applies to him, but this text is written to the church. And as Paul is warning here about the, the lust of money, the pursuit of greed, he speaks of those that have wandered away from the faith, and they've pierced themselves. A sword has been driven through their own soul as they've been given over to this Lust. Many sins are birthed from this craving and passion for wealth. Many seemingly good men have been drawn away by the lust of more and pierced through their own soul, trying to find heaven in this life only to assure themselves of hell in the next. So I want to ask you a question, beloved, as we, as we sit here today. What do you love? What do you love? Where do you seek satisfaction and contentment? What are the things that run through your mind when you can't sleep at night? What do you dream about when you envision a better life for yourself? What are the things that you wish for that you do not have? What do you take delight in? Where do you find the most joy, the most happiness, the most pleasure? Paul says, in craving the pleasures of this world and the desire for wealth and more, many have pierced through their own soul as they've sought a greater love than Jesus. And so as I close, church, godliness is great gain.
It is great gain. And true, deep satisfaction can be found in this life. But it's only in Christ. All lesser pursuits will leave you empty and thirsting for more. And they will lead into temptations and snares. So remember today, beloved, you are rich in Christ. You have every spiritual blessing poured out upon you through the gospel, through the work that Jesus accomplished. As he said on that cross, it is finished. If you know him, he spoke of work that was applied to your soul and will forever. He will be your mediator, your representative, your substitute. Secondly, your ultimate hope is glory. Our hope is not here. It is not here. It is found in heaven where we have a current citizenship awaiting our arrival. And so lastly, hold loosely to this world's goods. Deny yourself, Christian. I know we don't like to hear that. It's not the thing that we wake up thinking that we want to do. But deny yourself. Delight in Him and you will be satisfied. And may the hearts of God's people sing with the affection of Paul, whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ because my heart has come to behold something far better. Let's pray.